Welcome to the first episode of the Ashoka Systems Change Podcast, a new six-part podcast series from Ashoka, the world's largest network of social entrepreneurs. My name is Bergel Barron, and together with Odin Mullenbein, lead of the systems unit at Ashoka Globalizer, we explore some of the key ideas and approaches used by social entrepreneurs to achieve systems change. In these interviews, we discuss key dimensions of systems thinking, like approaches to collaboration, leadership, and crucially funding, through the experience of Ashoka Changemakers, working as systems entrepreneurs. I'm very pleased today to welcome Candice Paris to the Ashoka Systems Change podcast. Candice is the executive director of Truckers Against Trafficking, a nonprofit that she set up in 2009 to educate, empower, and mobilize the trucking industry to recognize and to fight against human trafficking. Under Kendis' leadership, Truckers Against Trafficking has registered and trained some 850,000 people in the transportation industry, over 700,000 of whom are truck drivers. Over this time, some 2,500 calls have been made into the U.S. National Human Trafficking Hotline, leading to more than 600 cases of human trafficking and the identification of some 1,200 victims. Truckers Against Trafficking recently expanded into Canada. Hi, Odin. Hi, Fergal. I'm very much looking forward to speaking to Kendis about her brilliant work at Truckers Against Trafficking. But just before we do that, I'm wondering maybe if you can set the scene a little bit about the work that Kendis has been doing and what you think is interesting from a systems perspective about her work. In earlier episodes, uh, Jordan, Giroux, and Mike told us about the policies that they were able to influence, including U.S. budget items, curricula and education systems, and voter registration policies. We invited Candice to expand on this topic in two ways. Uh, first, by walking us through her own advocacy work in more detail, and by showing us that social entrepreneurs don't necessarily have to have a track record of successful service delivery over many years before they can influence policies. Candice's case is also a great opportunity to address at least one of the criticisms of systemic social entrepreneurship. These criticisms include a lot of topics that we cannot discuss in this introductory series, like social ventures only tinkering with systems on a superficial level, issues of power and accountability, and social ventures undermining public systems. That said, Truckers Against Trafficking is a great counterexample to another criticism, namely that social entrepreneurs tend to work only with the victims of injustices instead of confronting the perpetrators who are responsible for the social problem in the first place. Candice's organization not only mobilizes an army of truckers to go after human traffickers, it also helps truckers to become role models and to strengthen social norms against prostitution. So there is a lot to learn from her case. Thanks, Odin. So thank you very much, Candice, for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So Truckers Against Trafficking, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and the scope and impact of your work? A little bit of an overview, Candice. Absolutely. Truckers Against Trafficking is really seeking to build up the largest mobile army of transportation professionals to discover and disrupt human trafficking networks. So recognizing that at any given time, there are more truck drivers and bus drivers out on the road than there are law enforcement officers, how can we take these people who are often in the right place at the right time and help them understand the crime of human trafficking and how they can recognize it and report it effectively? And so our goal is to really mobilize 
uh, these market sectors, as well as the law enforcement and the state agencies that work with them in order to assist in the recovery of victims and the arrest of perpetrators. And what kind of impact have you had over the years? Can you give us a little bit of an overview? Absolutely. Truck drivers, especially, we started with them and, and we launched into busing just a, a year ago. But drivers now have made over 2,000 calls into the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And that's resulted in well over 600 cases with close to 1,200 victims. And what we're seeing is, is that the more drivers understand this crime, the more they are making these calls on behalf of the people that before this, they just assumed wanted to be out there, were selling sex, and now they're coming to their aid. And the numbers I just gave you are actually only one slice of the data pie because those are numbers coming into the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Those do not count any calls that are made into 911 or the local sheriff's office because in the United States, no one else is tracking that data on a nationwide basis. So we know that there's even greater impact than just those numbers that I gave you. Wow. That's impressive. Can you talk a little bit about the problem itself, the scale of the problem, and how you thought about going about trying to deal with this problem at the beginning? You have adopted, by and large, a systems approach to, 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 to dealing with this problem right from the very beginning. Yes, we recognized that we were going to be a part of the solution. We're not stating in by any means that transportation is the be-all, end-all, and that we're going to end human trafficking in the United States. However, if we really could mobilize key market sectors who are out on the road, who are mobile, and we know traffickers move their victims from point A to point B, you know, could we raise up a, a significant chunk, right, of eyes and ears that before really weren't enlisted in this fight? And when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of victims in the United States alone. And, and we're focused mostly on uh, the commercial sex or sex trafficking. Basically, when uh, someone is being forced or duped or coerced into selling themselves for sex and you have a third party making a profit, you know that then you have a sex trafficking situation. And so recognizing that there are pimps, there are traffickers who are taking their victims to places that truck drivers, bus drivers sometimes intersect with, you know, again, can this population really be mobilized to combat it? And our thinking was, especially when you're dealing with an industry, it's about 7 million strong, the trucking industry alone in the United States, you've got over 3 million commercial driver's license truck drivers out there on the road. We had to come up with a program that would fit within their existing infrastructure. And so saying, hey, here's some training. Can you put this into your training and orientation programs? Uh, when we're talking to law enforcement, especially state patrol, and they make uh, routine inspections of truck drivers, or they intersect with them at way stations or ports of entry, or they're going into their carriers and doing mandatory safety compliance meetings. These were points of intersection that already existed. And what we asked them to do is, can you now take the TAP message in with you and add an anti-trafficking component where none really existed? And so, you know, they agreed. And, and we're finding the same thing with legislation as well, too. States, whether they're changing administrative rules, 
or writing new laws, drivers oftentimes have to go to CDL school, commercial driver's license school. And so they're already in the classroom. Can we add a component of anti-trafficking training so that driver is ready to go and can recognize this crime and know how to report it before he or she ever gets behind the wheel? Now, you decided to focus I take a systems approach. Did you look at different parts of the system, different systems within the whole process and decide to focus on those? And was that a a difficult decision? And I guess I'm really interested in, in getting a sense of what systems you were really focusing on. Yeah. Well, at the state level, I'll talk about state agency level. We, and a perfect example is Chief Lorenzen from Iowa, the chief of Iowa Motor Vehicle Enforcement. He and I started talking about all of the different ways that his troopers intersected with commercial vehicle holders. And once we started to understand from regular interdiction stops to ports of entry to way stations to mandatory safety compliance meetings and so on and so forth, uh, all of the different ways that the state agency intersected with our key market sector, we decided to create a model, and it's called the Iowa MVE model, that not only we wanted Iowa to adopt, but we wrote it up and we started to shop it out to other states. And so what ended up happening is, and it's not just state patrol, but oftentimes this model intersects with Department of Public Safety, Department of Revenue, Department of Licensing, Department of Motor Vehicles, Department of Transportation, all of these different agencies who before TAD existed had no policies or protocols on the books in terms of combating human trafficking, especially when it intersected with the commercial vehicle, commercial vehicle sectors. Now they did, right? And they had a turnkey model. They had something that fit within their existing infrastructure. They needed to tweak their systems in order to create the time and create the space in order to train their people and and then, again, use their time and space in order to get this message out to our key audience. So when we're talking about the fact that, right, there are over 3.5 million CDL holders, there's no way we're going to reach them all by ourselves. We need to enlist not just their companies, but we need to enlist these state agencies. We need to enlist law enforcement, the guys that behind the licensing counters, you name it, in order to also help us spread the message. And so, you know, very early on with the Iowa MBE model, it was truly the state of Iowa that was the only one doing it. <laughs> and so uh, we started uh, talking to the, the chief, started talking to his buddies in other states. And, and the more we went out and made presentations and started talking to different law enforcement officers in other states, we handed them this model and said, here you go. This is something you can immediately take back and get your guys, you know, going. They can start doing this. And it just clicked. These officers, they they got it. It made sense. Uh, it makes sense to them to enlist the trucking and bus industries as allies in this fight. And so they petitioned their bosses and and that's how some of the systems change has occurred with at the at the state level. That's very interesting. Now you clearly spent some time trying to understand their systems and their infrastructure uh, so that it would fit within that. And I guess also the first state to come on board is really a crucial step. So can you talk a little bit about understanding how they operated, whether that was straightforward and designing, you know, to operate within their infrastructure and this key first, I guess, first client, first influencer that, that would play a role as you grew? Absolutely. And oh, man, we had a huge learning curve because Iowa... <laughs> 
their motor vehicle enforcement falls under the Department of Transportation. Well, guess what? Every other state does it a little bit differently. So, you know, what the chief, Chief Lorenzen was able to accomplish by having a few conversations, getting his whole, you know, basically getting this model all into play. Other states, we've had to take the long way around. For example, I'm from Colorado. Colorado, it's not the uh, motor vehicle enforcement that does anything around licensing. Well, that's the Department of Revenue. So we had to go in and, and you know, create meetings and meet with decision makers from Department of Revenue in order to get tap wallet cards handed out at licensing stations here. At the same time, we were working with Colorado State Patrol on those mandatory safety compliance meetings. But guess what? Those are grant specific. So you'd have to write those into a grant in Colorado, whereas in another state, it they could totally do that, like up in Michigan. So absolutely, it was it was a massive learning curve. Uh, you know, we started off with kind of this dream state who had everything compartmentalized in Iowa. And we thought, oh, this is going to be easy <laughs> until we moved on to the second state and we found that it was very different. And so I would say Michigan and Ohio were other early adopters. And so, again, we just had to work within their systems. And what emerged for us, and this really goes along with our theory of change, is the different TAT champions that really came forward. So, obviously, Chief Lorenzo in Iowa, it was Captain Mike Crispin of Ohio State Patrol in Ohio. And, and Mike was the first, Captain Crispin was the first one to suggest, hey, we should change our administrative rule under Department of Public Safety to add an hour of anti-trafficking training into CDL schools. And in other states, we found out really fast, well, it's going to have to be a legislative change. So, you know, for us, it was really about becoming a student of the agency, just like we had become a student of the trucking industry and the bus industry and learning what their systems are like. And, you know, having whoever we knew introduce us to the people over here who introduced us to the people over here until we got into the same room with them. And we asked them, hey, would they consider doing, you know, tweaking this part of the system in order to adopt an anti-trafficking policy? So pretty big learning curve. We're still learning. We're still learning what data agencies, their capabilities are. We're adding different things all the time because these guys are the experts, right? They're the experts either in the private sector, the public sector, they know their industry, they know their agency. And so for us, it's just a matter of saying, where are those points of intersection with our key market sectors? And how can we fold the tap message into those? And presumably, Chief Lorenzen and indeed the others, they would need to see some, some, some significant results. If they're going to start sharing this or become ambassadors, as you say, or to talk to, to, and, and promote what you're doing, can you talk a little bit about that, how challenging that was and getting to some kind of impact that was going to drive, I guess, this across the states? Yes, thankfully, we had some initial numbers from the National Human Trafficking Hotline showing the veracity of the program, right? That the drivers really are in the right place at the right time. The more they become trained, you know, the more they can make calls on behalf of victims. So we did have some early on numbers. I started having those conversations with Chief Lorenzo in 2012. TAT had really been up and running about mm, mid-2009. So we had a little bit of data under our belt. What ended up happening, though, is that we started to see state patrols across the nation begin to do undercover investigations of their own, and they would do them at truck stops. And TAT would actually assist and help get them trucks. You can't do an undercover sting at a truck stop without a truck. 
And so what what law enforcement started to find was just, again, all they had to do was go and do one of these undercover stings at a truck stop and they would see, you know, this is evidence. This is, you know, this is this is actually happening. We probably knew in the back of our head it was happening, but here it is right in front of our face. And these undercover stings are still are still uh, are still going on across the nation with a variety of units. So that also helped them to, I mean, the basic idea made sense to them, but the fact that they went out there and saw this in their own backyard with their own guys also really cemented the power of the program, the power of the concept, because an undercover investigation, you know, it's over and done with, you know, in a day's time versus truck drivers who are constantly out there. And don't forget, we're also training truck stop employees as well. They are, they too are on the front lines. They too can recognize and report this crime and they can take a victim-centered approach. So I would say those two things, you know, combined people, you know, people were talking. And the other thing we started doing was we started training the, the law enforcement officers, right? And a lot of these guys, especially when you're talking state patrol and interdiction stops, they're used to pulling over a car or a truck. And what are they thinking? Drugs. That's what they're looking for. Drugs, 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 drugs. So even if there's a passenger in the vehicle that's not even on their minds. And so when we started going in and started talking to them about, hey, if there's a passenger in the vehicle, you need to at least consider human trafficking. Here are the signs to look for. Here are the questions to ask. And you would not believe how many light bulbs started going on once that training started occurring. That training still goes on today. And how many cases they are realizing, holy cow, that we missed. So there was a big education component that needed to occur But again, once these champions started to truly champion the program within their spheres, you know, the laws and the administrative rules did start to change. And certainly people got on board pretty quickly with adopting anti-trafficking protocols. That's great. What kind of time frame were you talking about? How long did it take to build this initial relationship and have success with Lorenzen and then moving across the first few states? And what kind of time frame I started talking with the chief in 2012. I think we really launched the model in 2013. By the end of 2013, I think we had about seven states, something like that. And then as the years progress, it's just continued to grow. States, you know, more and more states year after year. We are currently up to 46 states that have now adopted the model in part or in whole. Obviously, we want the main 48. Alaska and Hawaii, God love them. We want them too. But we're really focused on the main 48 that trucks are driving across all the time. And we want full adoption. Uh, so we have a pretty good system in place, and which is, by the way, ever evolving. And so is the model. The more we learn, and of course, we added bus, uh, the bus industry to this. The more we learn, the more we ask these guys to do. And so, yeah, the model continues to evolve. And, and so, you know, we're not we're not there yet. But the fact that we're up to 46 states is a pretty good testament to the fact that the strategy really works and that the TAT champions have really made a huge, huge difference in getting this message out there to their to their colleagues, their partners, their buddies. And the fact that, you know what, these these law enforcement officers, they're seeing results. Well, absolutely. So huge impact across a, in a growing number of states. What about at the national level and the policy level there? Have you had any impact? Has that been a focus? And what are your thoughts on that? We've been a little more focused on the state level in terms of getting anti-trafficking training into CDL schools. However, recently, there was a law passed that, that had nothing to do with us that actually incentivized companies to, to take a second look at, at demand reduction 
And it basically created a lifetime ban on a CDL if you use your commercial vehicle to commit the felony of human trafficking. But the law that we helped to assist in was Klobuchar's bill, which basically uh, created a position um, well, it allowed the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, which is the top federal agency under the USDOT that regulates the commercial vehicle sector. It allowed them to become active in fighting human trafficking and took a law to let their agency do something like that. Since then, one of the things that's occurred is not only has the FMCSA opened considerable doors for us here in the United States with a, you know, a myriad of agencies, they've actually allowed um, their granting program to uh, basically any state who wants to bring us in for our in-depth law enforcement training can now apply through for a federal grant through the FMCSA, which is fantastic. Another little, you know, systems change that didn't exist before. And so those states that really can't afford to pay the travel costs can now can. They can apply for those grants. They also were helpful. We just launched into Canada. And they contacted their counterparts up in Canada and asked them to come to the table. We had one of our big coalition builds in Toronto, um, October 29th, and FMCSA got their counterparts up in the room. Um, so that law was was significant in terms of unleashing the FMCSA. I would also say uh, one of the other things that we helped suggest was any kind of granting breaks or opportunities for CDL schools across the nation, if they were going to adopt an anti-trafficking program, that they could also ask for funding. That was part of the law. And an amendment to the law was, uh, or in addition to the law, was the Booker-Fisher Amendment that basically created the United States Department of Transportation Advisory Committee on Human Trafficking. And I recommended that this be created in order to build out a report that would create best practices for all state DOTs that would not only be given to state DOTs, but also to the governors in the state. And the report also covered additional agencies as well. Because this is something that TAT was already doing, I thought, hey, this would be a great way to kind of accelerate the timeline. Let's get it to every state DOT and governor. And again, not just DOT, but Department of Motor Vehicles, Department of Revenue, Department of Licensing, all of these different state agencies, at least how they intersect with the transportation industry. Let's activate these guys. Let's activate them in the fight. And this report is much broader than trucking and busing. This is ports. This is airlines. This is transit. So it's covering every mode of transportation. And so that, to me, was a great federal win because now we have a really solid report that not only contains, obviously, the Iowa MVE model and TAT's other recommendations, but it's got something that's basically turnkey pathways of engagement for a variety of state agencies uh, for multiple modes of transportation. That's how we've intersected on the federal level. Well, that's hugely impressive. A lot to talk about there. I'd be very interested to go into that maybe later on if we've a moment to come back to that. Um, one, one of the uh, interesting questions, I guess, is that a social entrepreneurship can be, has been uh, criticized for focusing more or even only on, on the victims of social problems and leaving uh, perpetrators untouched. Now, with truckers against trafficking, you not, not only send an army of truckers after human traffickers, but in a way, you help the truckers to become role models themselves, which I guess strengthens the values and norms in the community itself. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we started our man-to-man campaign in 2017. And basically, we wanted to be more explicit in talking about the issue of demand. It was always implicit in everything that we did from the beginning, but but we felt like it was time to get these guys to be a little bit more verbal, a little bit more out front about the issue, right? Because no buyer means no victim and therefore no crime. For us, it was trying to put a little bit more of a public face on the underlying, the root cause issue around demand. And so we know that the majority of men do not purchase commercial sex. But we know that uh, within trucking, within busing, just as within every industry, there are some that do. So again, is there a way that men can begin to talk to other men about this issue, help it to not be something that is considered normal? you know, that this is not a normal part of of a healthy masculinity. And can they have some of these conversations around this issue? And again, ultimately, it's to help invigorate, right, or motivate, I'm going to be taking this second look, this person, you know, nobody is dreaming about becoming a, you know, a prostitute when they're a little kid. It's usually there's some kind of trauma, there's some kind of hardship, there's some kind of need that forces them into, or some kind of abuse or mental health issue that forces them into that role. And then, of course, when you take it a minor or there's a pimp involved um, that compounds it, and then you have a victim of sex trafficking. And so, again, helping, helping men understand the issues associated with demand and that demand fuels sex trafficking and letting our truck drivers, and we want to grow this obviously into bus drivers, and, and we're going to also expand into the, the energy sector, really, again, uh, help lead that or, or at least take part in that public conversation. And so with our man-to-man campaign, we partner with the American Trucking Association's road team captains. So you have some of the best of the best commercial drivers out there. These guys are used to public speaking. They're going into schools. They're going into places all across the nation and talking about the trucking industry already. And so could they weigh in on why they don't purchase commercial sex and participate in a a very public campaign around this and raise their voices. And so we asked them, you know, we created billboards for that. We have, we have it on our website. We have uh, this out on social media. We wanted one to just, you know, get the conversation going around that. Um, And these billboards, they flank our freedom drivers project, which is a 48 foot long mobile museum that we have artifacts from actual trafficking cases. It's a very powerful way to learn about the issue of human trafficking, these billboards flank that. So, you know, before the audience even walks in to engage the exhibit, you know, they're having to engage the issue uh, around demand reduction and the, and the need for it. But on top of that, it was actually our drivers who came to us and said, we need more tools. We need more tools to talk to other drivers about demand and and the need to end commercial sex, sexual exploitation. And so we created a a training DVD, Addressing Demand, Man to Man. It's on our webpage. And basically, it's a pretty good look at some of the things I've already been talking about. You know, what does healthy masculinity actually look like? The myth that prostitution is actually, you know, good for you work, you know, really trying to kind of basically pull the mask back, pull the veil back and help these guys again, understand really what's at stake here. All of this comes down to that knock on their door at night, right? All this comes down to is that, that person that's walking around the lot in front of their truck, right? And the more we can help 
help them understand and recognize the humanity of that person and help them recognize the backstory, the, the potential backstory that really is involved when they see her or and sometimes it's a him, you know, and all of a sudden these issues that maybe before they just never took a second look, but now they get it, right? They understand what's at stake here, where this person is probably coming from, the violence that they're most likely facing, let alone, right? We don't even talk about the mental, physical, spiritual, emotional impact of what that life must be like. And can that driver step in in that place and make a phone call or share a kind word or have a conversation, right? And and facilitate some kind of kindness, some kind of humanity. And so that really is what the program is about. We're trying to, again, get to the root issue giving these guys the tools, right, and creating spaces for them to enter that public discourse around the issue of demand. And then we have a list of, we have a host of action steps for men's groups, for individuals, for corporations. We have anti-trafficking in persons policies with a demand reduction focus. By the way, you cannot use company work time or company work product to purchase commercial sex. That is a fireable offense, let alone we should also report you to law enforcement. So all that information is out there on our demand webpage. And again, just urging companies to take this issue seriously. And by the way, from a risk management approach, especially with that law that's now on the books, that if you use your commercial vehicle to commit the felony of human trafficking, you have a lifetime ban on your CDL. Of course, that's the least of your problems because you should be in a jail cell. But from a risk management approach, it just makes sense for companies to do the training and to adopt the the anti-trafficking person's policy. That's comprehensive, a very, very uh, thorough and uh, very impressive, Candice. Now, you started off working at a systems level. Many social entrepreneurs will start in a more traditional social entrepreneurial fashion and then make the move. Do you have any tips for social entrepreneurs generally working on a systems level? Yeah, you know, as I mentioned before, really be a student of the system you're targeting. You need to understand how it works And you need to go to your partners within those systems and let them be the experts, right? So we're in Canada. We're growing up into Canada now. And so you know how we've spent uh, a lot of our initial phone calls and a lot of our initial meetings asking questions. And we tell them, you're the expert. You need to train us. You need to educate us. Here's what we've done in the States. What works, what wouldn't work? What's the Canada distinctive? Uh, how do you guys do things differently? What, how do we need to tweak our language? What, you know, where do we need to be flexible? How do we pivot? Um, and so same thing when we go state to state to state here learning how this state actually does it. We're the ones who bend. We don't just give up and walk away or we don't just hit them over the head with something. We're the ones who pivot, move, tweak the model so that it would work for this state. So definitely be a student of the system that you're targeting so that you can affect change from within existing infrastructures. And I would say that that is so true on both the private and the public side. You're not going to want to ask people to add a very strong fiscal note. You know, all we're doing with trucking companies, the materials are free. All they have to pay for is the training time it takes to implement. 
right? So we're trying to make things as easy a lift as possible and yet make them substantial enough that they actually have an impact. And that just takes time. That takes asking questions. You approach it from from a, a humble approach. You may be the expert in whatever social issue you're trying to solve. They're the expert right, on how their their company or their agency works. So go to them, tell them that, ask them for their help. And what we have found time and time again, we've never run up against somebody who who doesn't want to, you know, talk about their knowledge of their industry or their agency. Most people are extremely happy to tell you how things work. And that's when then you can go back to the drawing board and say, okay, where are those pathways for engagement based off of this system? Very interesting. Flexibility is important, I guess. Absolutely. You have to be able to or be ready to evolve your system or your strategy. Like I said, there are things that work in one state or in one company that don't work in another state or another company. I'll give you a great example. Early on, one of the states, Arkansas, came to us and they put a uh, law in the books that legislated, that mandated all CDL holders, all Class A CDL holders, to get our training, not just the guys at the CDO schools. So this law passes and we're like, oh, this is great. Well, guess what? Uh, And before we realized that it was going to be really bad, we went over into Kansas and Kansas passed a law, not just class A, but class A, B, and C, CDO holders uh, mandate the training. So Arkansas goes into effect and it was a whirlwind. It was painful. We had to end up hiring a certification compliance coordinator. The state of Arkansas, God love them, just did not have the infrastructure that was going to be helpful for for our poor truckers. You know, you couldn't go into a DMV in Arkansas to take the training. You'd have to like some of these guys, average age of an American truck driver is 55. They had to go to the library to do the training, the library, the would their firewall would block our content. You know, these guys, they're getting their CDO license, like was getting held up uh, just to take this training. And long story short, it was a mess. And not only that, what we learned was uh, we had people that were just upset with us, um, but it was actually our partners that came to us and said, look, you know, trucking is one of the most overregulated industries out there. If you do this, you're going to become just another kind of regulatory industry or or organization in people's minds. And so we had a decision to make because we had plenty of other states coming to us and and wanting to do what Arkansas did and wanting to do what Kansas did. And we had a decision to make, say, listen, we could get this passed. We probably could get this passed at the federal level. Do we want to ensure everybody gets this training, but they're so pissed off and they can't stand it's just another regulatory organization that basically, even though they get the training, we don't have a real activated, motivated, compassionate base out there that's really actually looking for these victims and wanting to help them. So we had to make that decision. We would rather, instead of going you know, a mile wide and an inch deep, we'd rather have a smaller volunteer, like we want to do this base of of drivers out there who are passionate about it and who go deep and who make those phone calls. So we changed our tactic and there would be states coming to us. I mean, we would have to, I mean, we had some pretty strong conversations with different states. The legislators were upset with us because we said, we will fight you. (laughs) We will fight you if you move forward with this, with this mandate, uh, you know, at the state level, uh, unless it's CDL schools. So we came up with a compromise 
And that's what has gone down, you know, state to state to state. But, you know, we were two states in before we learned our lesson the hard way. So, again, you have to learn uh, from your partners. We consider the trucking and bus industries our actual partners. And so if we're listening to them and we're not just going to go and and pass our agenda and say, good luck with that, we really want to come alongside these guys because at the end of the day, they're the ones on the front lines. They're the ones who are actually out there. They're the ones making the call. Oh, and on top of doing the regular job, right? We want to be a true partner in every sense of the word and listen to their concerns and listen to the challenges. And again, be willing to pivot when we recognize that, you know what, this isn't actually the the best way to go. We need to hear from our partners and work with them to help fight human trafficking. Excellent advice, Candice. Born from experience. What's next for you? We're, like I said, we're going up into Canada. Uh, We've got a lot of work to do there. There's a lot of crossover. So we want to replicate our model up there. And we are moving into the energy industry. And so when you think about oil and gas, when you think about wind and solar, uh, when you think about, right, these infrastructures of these towns, uh, a lot of people come in to whether they're drilling or, or again, putting up wind, solar, whatever it may be. The whole dynamic of these towns change. And so just as the energy industry is concerned about the environmental impact that they have on a city, on a town, on a state, we're asking them to to take care around their social impact, right? And to address what are the issues at stake when we come in around human trafficking. I mean, I'm not just talking about boom towns. I'm just talking about any time where a trafficker or a pimp may bring victims to places where large groups of men gather. And so we want to train them all. We want to train oil rig workers. We want to train, obviously, the, the truck drivers who are moving the product. We want to train the salespeople, the the guys up in in corporate Houston. You know, again, this is an issue that everyone needs to know about, right? Especially when we talk about prevention side and people taking this information back to their their kids around the dinner tables. So for us, it's just a matter of obviously continuing to saturate the current markets that we're in. We got a long way to go still with trucking and bus, but then this launch into Canada and energy are really are really the, the next horizon for TAT. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you funded the organization and any insights into the challenges of funding systems change organizations? Yeah, so TAT receives the majority of its funding through corporate sponsorships. So that's another thing we go to the industry to and we say, hey, this is in your backyard. You guys are going to be part of the solution. We want to work with you. And also, can you help? Fund it, and they've been extremely generous, and we continue to to scale funding and continue to scale the organization thanks to their generosity. But that's not the only place. We also have private donors, and we also have a few foundations who support our work. I would say, for on my level, we don't fit a lot of the traditional foundational funding models. We're national. We're not local. We don't provide direct services. We're not handing out meals to the homeless. We're out there doing educating, training, changing federal, state law. We're doing that kind of systems change work and not direct assistance. Again, not a lot of foundations really have a focus around fighting human trafficking yet. And so this is something I would love to see change in the world of philanthropy. 
uh, whether it is either a focus on on the topic of human trafficking, the issue of human trafficking, or again, those of us who are taking on a systems, a targeted systems change approach, and that we wouldn't get dinged just because we're national. We have to be national. You know, you can't build an army, a mobile army without crossing state borders. So we've got to be big. We've got to be approaching, you know, multiple sectors here. And um, the more foundations that can recognize that and look at the impact of the work and be willing to fund that, that would be <laughs> that would be a huge win, not only for TAP, but I'm sure for, for many social entrepreneurs that are out there. One of the, the key activators in a state in terms of targeted systems change really is our, our coalition builds. And so we do conduct half-day events uh, in a variety of states all across the nation where basically we go in and we bring key, uh, we bring public and private sectors together. Specifically, we want trucking companies, bus companies, and we want the truck stops in the room. We also get the state trucking association in the room and the state trucking association helps us get some of those carriers to come to the table. And then on the state agency side, we get DOT, DMV, right? All of the different state agencies. And we get the law enforcement, not just state patrol, but we get the local PD in the room and the local PDs who are the police departments for the truck stops that are also in the room. And we bring all these guys to the table and we do a half day meeting in conjunction with the uh, office of the attorney general, the attorney general's office in that state. And we do a basically a, a human trafficking 101. We give a TAT presentation, help people understand who we are, what we're seeking to do. Um, and everybody leads with actual you know, action steps. We have a survivor uh, who uh, TAT employs two field trainers who are survivors of human trafficking who come and not just tell their story. Um, and one of them especially was trafficked on a truck stop lot. Um, But they not only tell their story, but they train the people in the room. How do you take a victim-centered approach? Because sometimes, you know, people want to just run them off a lot or, you know, you don't want a cop arresting a 15-year-old as a child prostitute. You need to take a second look, right, and recognize this is a potential victim of human trafficking. And then we finish with a law enforcement panel, which basically is talking about what does this crime look like in our state? What's our state's response to it? And then we have a long, we have a dialogue. We let industry and we let law enforcement talk to each other. You know, what are we going to do together? How how are we going to prioritize this issue? You know, cell phones actually exchange. You know, truck stop managers learn, hey, I don't want to just call in prostitution if I see it on my lot. I need to say human trafficking. And all of a sudden, dispatch, right, is going to elevate the priority of that crime to hopefully get somebody out there immediately. And so if everybody can be educated, everybody can be on the same page, when those calls come in from here on out, like I said, the response level we've seen go up in, in terms of these entities really working together. And then, of course, we talk about the Iowa MVE model, these coalition builds, and everybody leaves with really solid action steps of, okay, I've been to this meeting, now what do I do? Um, and so whatever agency you're with, whatever company you're with, you know what you can do uh, walking out of that room. And of course, we have brought all the materials for folks So they're ready to go and take the next step beyond just sitting around a meeting talking about it. Very valuable. Very, very, very valuable. And thank you so much for joining me today and Odin and for sharing your hard-won insights. My pleasure. Thank you so much. 
That was a, a very rich interview with Candice, very insightful. What stood out for you, Odin? Three things. First, how important even a single ally at the right place can be. In Candice's case, one such ally was Mr. Lorenzen, the chief of the Iowa Motor Vehicle Enforcement Agency. He was an expert on the systems that Candice worked in, had a great network and considerable influence himself when it comes to conducting experiments, running his agency and making policy recommendations. Candice needed some luck to find this particular superstar, but she also improved her chances by attending just the right conferences and by signaling to these experts that she wants to learn from them and support them. Second, if you listen to this podcast, chances are that you want to have impact on a systems level. You also need to keep your organization alive, though, which often requires earning money. The good news is that these two things can actually support each other. Because of the law that Candice pushed for, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration can now get involved in fighting human trafficking, for example, by paying uh, states for law enforcement trainings like the ones that are offered by Truckers Against Trafficking. This leads to more revenue and strengthens the social venture. And at the same time, improved capabilities on the ground also make it easier to build networks and to push for even more regulatory changes. So it's a feedback loop between top-down and bottom-up approaches. At Ashoka Globalizer, we often try to use this dynamic in our strategies. And the ability to work on these different levels is one of the reasons why social entrepreneurship can be so powerful. And we encourage social entrepreneurs to actually make use of that flexibility. And finally, coming back to Chief Lorenzen, Candice's story is a great reminder that systems change doesn't only need social entrepreneurs. Politicians, business people, administrators, artists, academics, activists, they all can make significant contributions. If we want to keep up in the world of accelerating change, we need everyone to be a change maker. Interestingly, this is exactly what most of our fellows do. Candice helps truckers become watchdogs against human trafficking. Mike mobilizes young people to use their voices in the electoral system. If you're not sure what your systems change goal should be, start by asking, how can I help people to become change makers? Thanks, Odin. That's very helpful. Thank you for listening to the Ashoka Systems Change podcast. We hope you found it interesting. If you enjoyed this episode, please do help spread the word on social media. And also, we would love it if you could leave a review on iTunes or whatever platform you use. If you'd like to find out more, please visit ashoka.org. The opinions in this podcast are personal and do not necessarily reflect Ashoka's position. Nothing said in this podcast should be interpreted as investment advice.